Yo, Mike, what it is, yo? I'm Kylie McDaniel from Fangraphs.com, and joining me on the other line in the dimly lit room with Paul McCartney, it's Eric Longenhagen. What have you? Hi, have you been watching like all the McCartney press stuff? Because that's weird that you mentioned that. Because I literally was like listening to one of his interviews before we hopped on here. I actually have the uh, the next podcast on my player is him on Mark Marin. But uh, yeah, I guess all that I had learned from the earlier media is <laughs> what I was referencing. If we want to keep this, PG. <laughs> it was just a good fun, you know. We're just lads. John and I were just we got the bottle of Jergens and we went to the room and it was just a bunch of good fun, you know. I like people do like claiming that weird stuff is totally normal, and it's like, eh, maybe because you're worth a zillion dollars, you have a little bit of a warped sense of what's going on. Yeah, I don't think Paul McCartney has a uh, has known what normal is like for like five or six decades now. So anyway, getting back to the baseball. Although, you know, you could argue that might be baseball-related. Um, so th- this would normally be the part where we talk about what we've been for- doing for the last week or what games we've been to or what things we've written. Um, there haven't really been games. Uh, this is, uh, as Eric said last week, kind of like the um, the little spot between the end of the minor league season and the beginning of Instructs in the Fall League. So hasn't been a ton of that. And as far as articles goes, uh, I guess we're recording this on a Sunday. Uh, it'll probably go up Monday, maybe Tuesday. And between recording and posting of the podcast we will have put up an update of the board uh which i guess will be a big article and after this we'll have an update of the draft rankings and there may be some other stuff but that seems to be the main stuff am i missing anything that's happened since last week i think no not really we've had some weird like um intra-squad stuff here in preparation for instructional league that i was in attendance for like it was bizarre and impossible really to evaluate anybody in a meaningful way um I think we're going to end up writing about players that graduated this season and uh, doing like a one-year look back at what we thought about the players as they like graduated um, and like the, where they last fell on our rankings or whatever. That might be in the works too. But um, but yeah, it's just been – I've just been focused on big league stuff uh, and just shadowing you know these, these – weird intra-squad games that have been going on here in Arizona as we get ready to do Instructional League. So the other, uh, I guess, big uh, piece of business is deciding on a name for this podcast, which I don't think we are necessarily, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we've necessarily completely committed to, you know, sending this to um, the art department. We have an art department, right? Yeah, the art department and uh, commissioning a theme song and all that sort of thing. Um, We appreciated all of your um, We'll, suggestions yeah we'll, we'll say some of the good ones uh there were some that were you know, a little obvious but you know we'll take feedback where we can get it derivative a uh, lo- lot of puns available yeah i would say not yeah not super creative but there were some that were very good and as i would have guessed me and eric came up with what we think is the best one but you know i, I think carson originally came up with the with the title for the post the untitled mcdongenhagen project and and then eric pointed out that that spells ump so which could, is a baseball term. Yeah, which hey, baseball guys. Uh, and then I noticed that we could call it McDong and Hagen or some form of that, the long version, to, you know, more colloquial friends, and then call it ump to more, you know, professional like PR people if we're trying to get somebody to come on. So I like the flexibility of having, you know, both options. So I think we're gonna roll with that for now. And, you know, we're open to other things, but I think for now we'll do that. Um so yeah, big thing off the to do list. Um now we also had talked about, behind the scenes, having a recurring segment each week, other than the three topics. 
and we settled on something that um, it was spurred on this week by something Michael Wilbon said on a PTI, which yeah, it seems like it's sort of receded into the background of the cultural conversation. Uh, but this week, uh, Wilbon's take on Jacob deGrom and the Cy Young uh, very briefly captured the imagination of baseball Twitter for being a historically bad take. It almost seemed like it was like intentionally comically bad just to get attention, but Wilbon has had takes like this about topics like this in the past, so I think we knew that it was, um, you know, old man yells at cloud kind of thing, but... While we were trying, Eric and I were trying to whittle down a list of things that we thought could possibly be recurring segments, we've now settled on something that functions as our audition to then be the disingenuous take people on TV that, you know, if we get to do it long enough, it ends up with a beach house in Malibu. Uh, right. You know, and also devices of rhetoric across America, but we'll, we'll forget about that for now. My therapist told me to do more ego driven stuff uh, because it would help me feel like I fit in more. Uh, and so that's so we're just this is entirely about uh, trying to get on TV this this whatever it's going to be. I mean, yeah, it's like directly. This is our audition for TV because we realized we could call it something very specific, like the worst take of the week or, you know, the spiciest take we can think of or the most disingenuous thing we can ever imagine. But then we realized all of these things are just things that exist because of TV. So we'll just call it TV, uh, you know, audition. Yeah, TV audition. We're going to call it the TV audition. And every week it'll be something slightly different, you know, but some, something equally useless as to what you normally would see on TV of shows where, you know, two idiots scream at each other about things. Um, so, Eric, since I've done, like, almost all the talking at this point, why don't you, uh, you know, let your rant come out of you? So, uh, sure. So I've been watching a lot of big league stuff over the last couple of weeks, specifically the NL Central race, which is very interesting because of the tight clumping of teams up at the top. And so I've been watching a lot of the Cubs Uh, And that has included newly acquired second baseman Daniel Murphy, who, while it is a sublime pleasure uh, to watch him hit, watching him run, especially recently as he's started to age, um, has been an affront to my senses. Like, it is uh, viscerally painful for me to watch this seemingly middle-aged man run. Uh, and like as we get to this place with baseball where everyone is trying to decide how to best go about fixing it, um, I just think that if better athletes play baseball, that uh, that is generally better for baseball. And so like watching Daniel Murphy run, every cast member of the office running the 5K in that episode where they run like the 5K for rabies awareness runs in a more aesthetically pleasing way than Daniel Murphy. Like he runs like your uh like if you have like an uncle or something that tries too hard to at sports during like family picnics. That's what Daniel Murphy looks like when he's running, like if you were also constipated. And like Masahiro Tanaka runs ninety feet and pulls a ham with a pulled hamstring uh, in a way that I think is more athletic looking than Daniel Murphy. And I just don't like the running style that he's chosen uh, and so I'd like – I propose some sort of – just something. Just something so I don't have to watch this man uh, run anymore. This is, this is the thing that I'm angry about. This makes me think of that gif of uh, Stanley from The Office dribbling with like one arm behind his back like he's from the 20s. 
Does that is it yeah. the running equivalent of that? When uh, when yeah, like back when uh, women's basketball was you you could not run from uh, end line to end line. You had to play either offense or defense, so you wouldn't get uh, sweaty. <laughs> we don't want that. Did you know about that? I did not know about it. Yeah, that's the thing. Like my mother-in-law, when she played basketball in high school, like you could only play offense or defense. You could not cross off court. <laughs> wow. You're a woman. So yeah, like just Dale Murphy, please stop running. Hit your hit your gappers. It looks sweet. Uh, and just please walk to first base. Well, there you go. A modest proposal for a multimillionaire athlete to stop moving. Or stop moving quickly, at least. All right. I have now prepared my rant. This offseason, people lamented the plight of the older player in free agency. The teams may have been colluding to drive down prices across the board, but were undoubtedly being too conservative. This year, a visionary has emerged, blowing right past the linear dollar-per-word debate and rendering value itself a thing of the past. Peter Angelos has paid Chris Davis $23 million this year in exchange for a heroic negative 2.8 war that is all coming with five years and $115 million left on that deal after this year. Davis is being paid at the top of the market for a performance that would have ended the career of a utility infielder, but instead, Baltimore has given Davis 505 plate appearances this year, all in the name of freedom. Stay with me. This extreme outlier will blow up any formula the eggheads can come up with, effectively killing analytics where it stands, as it should have been since before Billy Bean wrote that book, and allowing us to value players based on gut feel, intangible grittiness, and the tiniest of sample sizes as God intended. I used to say Mr. Angelos was playing three-dimensional chess, but now I know he's far beyond this. He's actually playing nine-dimensional tiddlywinks. Wake up, sheeple! I like you're you're towing that line between the uh, the intellectual progressives and the uh, the moral progressives. Well, I'm <laughs> like still, you're I'm straddling still com- the line between I'm the two. St- I'm still coming out of the character right now. Great job. <laughs> Thanks. I, I was thinking about. We could probably have a whole ten minute conversation about. PTI like and just and I just think it at this is this is not uh, satire anymore this is actually oh, we're, yeah we're back we're back <laughs> we're back on yeah. our original characters yeah this is backstage Colbert um like I do think that at some point this will all pass us by as well right like all of this stuff in general not just baseball related player evaluation like it doesn't matter how broad or narrow the topic is like it it will eventually just pass us by and when it does, like, I hope that I'm not still pounding a desk on TV and, like, calling people stupid. So, yeah, there has to be so – there's got to be, like, some sort of intellectual uh, euthanasia <laughs> where you just kind of check out, where you just kind of decide, you know what? I can't really do this anymore instead of being, like, a cranky blight on the discourse. I'll just bow out. So, so you're already um, mapping your exit from the TV gig you don't have yet. <laughs> Is that what I'm hearing? Yup. Because for the beginning yep. of what you just said, I was kind of lost, and I was like, "Oh, he's already complaining about the job he doesn't have." <laughs> I mean, that's It'll the just... that's the entitlement that millennials are accused of having. So I, you know, there you go. It's just continuing. Ugh, millennials. I'm talking about them next week. Anyway, All right. you want let's uh let's move let's on to the topics. To, yeah, let's talk about this first thing that we want to talk about, which was the guys that we've moved around uh, on the board. Yeah, I've and, I've done too much talking. So why don't you introduce our uh, first topic? <laughs> Um, 
Right. So, and again, like the article will be out before this podcast is, but it, as we're recording it, as of yet, it is not. Uh, essentially, we wanted to there. Were, Whereas the season wrapped up, like a half dozen, ten maybe players who, between the two of us, uh, we felt strongly about moving up for whatever reason. We had seen them lately uh, and or have sourced heavily on them uh, for various reasons. And uh, the, the combination of just wanting the board to be as up to date with our opinion about players as possible and wanting to have some... Uh, checkpoints, like some mental checkpoints for this offseason as we get into list-making season. Like, we just wanted to move some guys around, and this was sort of our last opportunity to do that, uh, even just for a few guys before it became sort of ridiculous, like, because everything is going to be updated shortly anyway. So we didn't make a sweeping, overarching pass at the board. We just moved uh, a couple people and shaded uh, some members of the top 100, essentially, up and down a little bit based on mostly injuries. Some of the players that uh, have tickled our fancy in this specific way is the number one guy. Oh, who who on the list of guys that we moved into the 50 future value tier or higher, Kylie, do you think is the most like interesting sort of bizarre inclusion? Which, stand, which name stands out to you the most? I would say the the two young Latin middle infielders, Bruhan and Rocchio. Uh, it would be Vidal Bruhan, a high A second baseman for the Rays, and Brian Rocchio, a rookie ball shortstop for the Indians. I think they're they're not obviously the same player, but I think they're similar enough. We could probably group them together, and they're probably I'd say Rocchio is definitely the most surprising name for people that just sort of casually follow prospect stuff and aren't like super on top of every single piece of information that comes out. They're the two players are similar in that um, the stigma against them, like the thing keep them off of a list like this traditionally is they're smaller guys. Uh, I think Bruhan is listed at what, like 5'9", 167 or something like that? Yeah, I mentioned uh, in the in the write-up that Nick Madrigal, Ozzy Albies, Louis Urias, who I think are all under 5'10", they all have sort of similar skills, but you have to basically be like plus sort of tools to make this sort of size work as an everyday player. Right, and uh, like Bruhan has been on our radar as a a guy who we thought was going to rise like for the last year plus he was the first guy I want to say on the, Hey, here are the forties and 45s who we think are going to be top 100 guys next year. Um, like I think he's the first name, uh, of like among the other guys who are like these little infielders that we really like and think, you know, we really don't care how small they are. It's just as many walks as strikeouts this past year, just about, it's almost exactly the same between low and high a, uh, 55 steals, I think 55, 55. Yeah. And like forty extra base hits, uh, switch hitter, like plus runner, pretty comfortably. Like it's it's all the stuff. He's just five nine, and, and we just and, don't care. And he's very aggressive at the plate, but he's one of those guys again, similar to Albies and Madrigal, where he has plus maybe seventy back control. So he can, there's there are guys in the big leagues that can have poor pitch selection and be over aggressive and make it work. And he has the sort of profile where it might not just get to double A and stop working. Like this will probably get to the upper levels and maybe even to the big leagues. Uh, and then Brian Rocchio with Cleveland is a Venezuelan infielder who came up to Arizona a little bit later than the season started. Uh, he was in the DSL. He just mashed in the DSL. Um, and I was lucky enough to see a lot of Cleveland's AZL teams and really uh, in extended and stuff too. Uh, their roster was just loaded with, you know, there were draft picks in the AZL that drew you to the ballpark, like Hankins and uh, Lenny Torres and stuff. But um, but when Rokio came up and really started to perform, like he was the buzz of the AZL. Uh, I got in and saw him a lot. It's again, just like Bruhan, it's he's small. I think he's listed at 5'10", 150 or something like that. I body comped him. <laughs> 
in the article to uh, 17-year-old Eric Ibar. So if everyone remembers what Eric Ibar looked like in his mid to late 20s, like that's when he was 17, Ibar, he looked like what Rokio looks like now, which is like a little bit leaner than that. But you could sort of see uh, the muscle groupings are, are, are there. Like he's a broad-shouldered 5'10 guy. Um, and so like I'm not concerned that he's too small. And he does everything that Bruhan does really. It's like he's fine at short. A lot of people think he ends up at second base, but he's going to play up the middle. He's got field to hit from both sides. He rotates. There's there's going to be more power than the size would suggest. He grinds out good at bats. It's just all the stuff. This is the best uh, hitter, like from a skill standpoint, that I saw in the AZL all year. I don't think do we we don't have him ahead of Christian on the hundred because uh, Christian Robinson with the Diamondbacks, who's like the other AZL hitter, who's on in the 50 future value tier or higher uh there's just that's like a big six three there might be elite raw power and field to hit and we stays in center field at peak like the, the ceiling there is like crazy we got rokio at 86 and robinson at 94 okay so like the two of those guys belong right next to one another these are essentially you know the the best in our opinion like the best professional 17 year old hitters on the planet one of them has a very stable offensive profile it would seem in rokio uh, the other one's a little bit more volatile, but the ceiling is higher. You could probably line those guys up uh, however you want, depending on what your personal tastes are. Uh, two addendums to that. Uh, th- those two 17-year-old guys in the AZL are ranked just behind Gorman and Kalenic, the two best uh, 18-year-old right. prep bat. I guess Kalenic's now 19. But the prep bat's in this last class, so they're basically all you know ranked the same. They're ranked from 84 to 94, so essentially the same. Uh, there is one 17-year-old you're forgetting, which is Wander Franco. <laughs> Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was 17 and now the sixth best prospect in baseball uh, after – I think we tweeted this out – or Eric tweeted this out from the Fangraphs prospect account. Uh, he performed better than Vlad Jr. did, and Vlad Jr. was like a hefty corner guy that people thought was going to turn into a first baseman. Franco, at the same age, at the same level, outperformed him as a guy that's a plus runner that can play shortstop. <laughs> Yeah. Which like, it wasn't people went nuts close. about Vlad Jr. when he did that, went even more nuts in subsequent years. And I don't feel like Franco's getting quite as much attention as he deserves. And he's been getting a lot of attention. Yeah, and some of it is – how much of it do you think is just the Appy – like the Appy League is not really accessible for – you really have to want to go to the Appy League. Yeah, they're, they're very know. small towns. And it's like some of the stadiums are like – below some of the top high school programs like it's that kind of like i mean appalachian league you can kind of guess like small towns in appalachia where you know they're not building new stadiums like they are in like you know double a or even low a in bigger cities so is it easier for you to just drive to an appy league city from orlando than it is to like take multiple connecting flights to get there um it might take uh, yeah it might be i mean i have to fly through atlanta to get to any of these and none of the parks i think are even within like an hour of an airport so yeah there might be some frontier thing i could do where i can get to one of the Abbey league cities but like i'm not doing that the the one that was easy for me was kingsport the mets affiliate in tennessee i think is like uh pretty close to knoxville so you can just drive from atlanta to knoxville and you have the the cubs double a team there and then i think kingsport's like an hour away from there and then i want to say like johnson city is like within an hour of that so, like, that sort of southern tip of it is accessible to Atlanta in the way that, you know, like, Clemson and South Carolina and, like, some of the, you know, the colleges are. But, yeah, it's definitely not convenient for almost anybody. The other guys that we moved up into the 50 or better tier, I think everyone that we moved up is a 50, for, like, similar reasons. Like, this is the best, the best whatever of this age uh, is Luis Patino, the righty in the Padres system, who, when I was on Carson's pod – a couple weeks ago talking about Carlos Vargas in the Indian system and talking about, like, is this the best 18-year-old stuff 
on the planet. Feedback I got from that discussion, like that question was, no, it's Patino. <laughs> like overwhelmingly. Yeah, the, so, the, the funny thing is we had a discussion about him in spring training because a, since I know people will guess, a non-Dave Cameron Padres employee talked to me at an amateur game and, and walked o- basically walked over and was like, hey, do you know anything about Luis Patino? And I went and looked at the board. I was like, yeah, we have him as a 40. Like, uh, I think Eric has seen him like in the mid-90s. Like, he's a smaller side, like six foot. Like, pretty good. He goes, no, no, no. I just saw him in spring training. This guy is bonkers. And he basically read the report that is accurate now. But um, I think he had only done that a handful of times and, you know, obviously hadn't performed at a high level, all that sort of thing. He basically, you know, what he did in – and the I guess what was it the end of spring training they had like a Padres prospect game I think from then on he just basically yeah. did that over and over and over again yeah like been sitting ninety four ninety seven elite on mound athlete really can spin it was was an average breaking ball last summer in the AZL when I first saw him and he was just like this hey have you seen the five ten Padres righty yet like um but uh, but now it's just it's everything like it's just performance in full season ball for someone this age is impressive and uh the breaking ball has ticked up a little bit and you know he's commanding the baseball uh in a way that is advanced for someone this age with this stuff so yeah it's just it's very he's very very good and so yeah i think he's uh he's sort of the benchmark you know as we comb through again part of the reason that we wanted to do this right now is this is who everyone's telling us is the best 18 year old 18 year old arm right now and so he is the bar by which all the other 18-year-old pitching prospects will be measured as we're trying to slap a future value grade on uh, guys in the coming months. And I would say uh, two interesting points to add to that. Uh, one, in a very deep Padre system, he went from, you know, as I was saying at the beginning of the season, like, oh, a fascination, a guy to keep an eye on. We've heard some good things. He's flashed some stuff, but we don't know if it's there. Uh, one, he's on the small side. He's six foot. So, you know, typically when you're talking about very hyped 18-year-olds, it's going to be guys with a long track record, which he doesn't necessarily have, and guys that are big, which he's not. And the other part is in a very deep Padre system, he's already slid past uh, Moray Hone, who signed for, what was it, $14 million. Michelle Baez, who was in the top 50 out of all of the minor leagues entering this year. Uh, we have him up near Chris Paddock. He passed a ton. Of, oh, and Espinosa. I was going to say the other, the other, oh, yeah, yeah, the other yeah. smaller guy with huge stuff that now right. is uh, is rehabbing Tommy John. Um, Who I hope to see on Wednesday. Yeah, and I think is I think is a comparable Wednesday. talent with a little more ceiling uh, and obviously a little more um, history. Um, but then obviously he has the surgery now, so we'll kind of wait and see how he comes back. But he, he's in that general group, uh, as Eric was saying, with all of these like super talented eighteen to twenty year old pitchers, and he's a little unusual for the reasons we. We pointed out, and also I think this year's draft class for both college and high school is a little lacking. So having this guy as sort of the um, the guy to beat makes it a little easier to kind of run through all these guys and say that you know this guy on a draft board who we haven't really thought of in terms of how he fits into these pro guys, you can slide him here because we have to use the sort of eighteen and nineteen year olds in pro ball as the proxy for where these guys should go on the list. And then the last couple guys who I'll just run through pretty quickly, unless you've got something you want to say about any of them, uh, Bryce Wilson with Atlanta whose stuff is just comparable to a lot of the guys who we have uh, as a 50 future value, like near-ready near pitcher pitching prospects, Dane Dunning, Dylan Cease, like guys at double-A and above. Uh, Wilson's stuff is just as good as those guys, and he's younger than all of them and in the big league. So like he just belongs to the front of that group now. 
Um, and he was the big t- example in, in, in my previous article about the guys that have the command that we might have been a little low on. Maybe we should start rounding up on those guys. And he was one of the guys, along with Shane Bieber, was like, oh, yeah, we're, I, think, I think we're like making these guys prove it more. When we've already seen the command, we should guess the numbers are going to be bonkers rather than waiting for it to happen. I suppose so. I mean, with Wilson, I think part of the reason he took off, too, was the the shape of the fastball change. Like, he was a sinker guy in high school and is now a, I'm going to work you at the letters, fastball guy. But, yeah, I mean, he gets it there. He gets it up there. Bubba Thompson was a, with uh, Texas, was just a multi-sport high school athlete, like, superstar quarterback. Had all the tools. Saw him here in Arizona last fall, and you could see even he was fighting through um, a leg injury of some kind. I want to say it was like knee tendonitis or something minor that he was playing through. So not 100%. Still looked great in Arizona. Uh, looked even better here in the spring. Really, all that we wanted him to go out and do was perform. He's done that, and so he's a top 100 guy now. His ceiling is is pretty goofy. And then Nolan Jones with Cleveland, the third baseman. Uh, we were concerned about him ultimately moving to first base, uh, entering got, the year. He got really big in his draft year. I think he put on like 40 pounds. Yeah, he was really big. Uh, every time I saw him out here in Arizona after the draft, like in AZL and like the following spring and stuff, he was he looked big. Like it was, I seemed, I was very like concerned that eventually he would just move to first. Um, yeah, like, he's leaned. I was gonna say go just on the summer showcase circuit, I think he was like six four one eighty, and then when I went to see him in the spring, I think he was like six four two forty. Like he was like a, like a different yeah. guy. So yeah, but uh, he has slimmed down. He looks really good, and also like there's just might be elite plate discipline here. Um, his walk rate, I think, was like eighteen percent, like crazy uh, this season, and so like better chance to stay at third base. We might be talking about an elite skill. Um, and just logically, like we had Zach Collins, who's sort of like, if you go look at Zach Collins numbers, uh, they look a lot like Nolan Jones and there's even greater risk that Zach Collins is just the first base or DH guy. Uh, especially now that Jones has sort of, uh, like gotten slimmer. So, and Collins has been like a 20 runner for a while too. So it's, you're into that area where you're like, you're not even sure he gets to his sixth year of control where he's, you know, past his peak already. And so, yeah, we uh, as far as guys who moved into the you know fifty plus future value, which we need we need a, an easier phrase to say than that. Like top one hundred is so easy to say, uh, but like we, we don't can do just say top one hundred, and we'll just know that it means one hundred and thirty, or to the top one hundred range. Uh, I guess so. That's words too. That's it. We moved another couple guys up for whatever reason. Um, you can read about that in the article, and a couple guys within the hundred moved up and down. Like I said, mostly because of either uh, performance, they've like outperformed their peers in some way uh, like all else being equal if you're hitting and the other prospect is not like give me the guy who's performing and so we made some adjustments based on that uh, and based on injuries uh, guys like you know like Michael Kopech's having Tommy John so we shifted him down uh, closer to some like we essentially downshift Tommy John guys based on the timeline so like if you were if AJ Puck was going to debut in the big leagues this year now his debut timeline is 2019, like mid-2019. We just sort of line him up with other pitchers with similar stuff who are now uh, expected to – we expect to debut like close to the same time. That's sort of how we make that Tommy John adjustment. And then uh, I don't know. Is there any other names you feel like we need to address based on having moved them? Uh, a couple real quick. I'd say Winsiel Perez, the shortstop with Detroit, is kind of interesting. Uh, I guess we think he's like a lower-rent version of this Brujan, Madrigal, Albies, Urias, Rokio kind of guy. I guess Andres Jimenez with the Mets would be another one. 
Uh, he's not quite as twitchy, hasn't proven it quite as much, but he could be that same sort of player. He'll be a guy to keep an eye on. Obviously, Eric talks about Carlos Vargas, who's like another one of these super elite 18-year-olds, but he's more in these sort of high school pitchers that don't quite have the command but have the huge stuff, which there yeah. are some guys like that in this class. And he's had a TJ. Yeah, which is also somewhat concerning. And I would also add Cole Roederer, um, who I saw a little bit as an amateur, and then he had an injury during the spring, which I think kept a lot of high-profile evaluators from coming to see him late. So he had sort of a, a small group of teams that were on him very heavily. And the whispers I had heard from scouts that liked him, or actually from from scouts who didn't like him that talked to scouts that liked him, because the scouts that liked him didn't want to say anything, they said some people think he's Ben Intendi. And I, and I kind of paused, and I'm like, okay. He's they like, whispered it. Yeah, they're, they're like, some other guy said this. I didn't say this. And some other guys, I think, actually mean this. And I was like, okay, well, like, he might be able to play center. But he's a little bit of a tweener. Some people think he's a plus runner, definite center fielder. Some people think he's more of a corner guy. He has some power... He definitely can hit, but it's a debate of like how much loft is in his swing. But I could see somebody seeing this guy on the right day and kind of squint and think that. Uh, and then the Cubs paid him, I think it was uh, seven figures, as an overpay in the second or third round. And it sounds like uh, essentially after he signed, he went into pro ball and was much closer to a Benintendi type than like a, a tweener sort of generic high school guy type. Um, yeah. Obviously, he's not Benintendi. We have him as a 40 right now, but he's sort of on the radar now, similar to how Bruhan was like two years ago. Not as the same kind of player, but like, hey, keep an eye on this guy. Like we might have been a little off at the beginning. Let's let's make sure we're not way off. The other guy like that is Josiah Gray with Cincinnati, who, yeah, I this is the other guy who I think um, – was kept from us effectively <laughs> or you could just say we didn't do a good enough job tracking him down yeah we knew the name we knew he was a conversion guy we knew he threw hard and he was athletic we just had sort right of but it's like mixed this stuff is, on the rest of it if you're an area scout this is exactly the guy that you're like who am i wonder if i can hide this guy because it's a small school conversion arm like from lemoyne college you know it's not most of the northeast area guys don't live like by in syracuse you know what i mean so it's like uh, definitely the type of guy that you uh, could conceivably hide, although I guess he kind of blew up on the cape a little bit, so it's kind of hard to do that when it's that guy. But yeah, it's mid-90s with a lot of strikes, uh, which isn't super typical for someone who's relatively new to pitching, and there's feel for spin, and he's athletic, and all that stuff, and you know, it's like 92, 96. It's good. He's good. But uh, we had a 35-plus on him pre-draft, and we just bumped him up to a 40 because he's just better than a 35-plus. Agree. Um, so topic two, uh, I'll set it up a little bit, but uh, I guess the sort of entry point to this was an article that uh, Eric had kicked around, and I thought it was time to talk about this and then also some other stuff. Um, right. Teams are making staff changes now. That's why it's, like, timely. Yeah, like, so, like, the, yeah, I guess his, uh, his article that hasn't, quite been written yet uh dovetailed with a bunch of other stuff we've been hearing so i guess it's a catch-all topic so eric tell us about this this sort of uh article idea and we'll jump from there sure so uh, in essence every team it's funny because scouting has been a lot around a long time as soon as teams decided there was like incentive to find talented baseball players created scouting this feels like you're doing a, a voiceover for a documentary and there's like cavemen like holding a bat and like hitting a dinosaur <laughs> and some guy's got a clipboard oh. writing down some notes yeah <laughs> they had also invented numbers then too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then and then those cavemen beat up the analytics cavemen. <laughs> yep, the analytics cavemen. <laughs> Took his abacus. They were living in their uh their mother's cave. <laughs> like, well, yeah, I mean they can't it's not a living. Their mother's den. Uh, scouting's been around and we still haven't we don't there's not an agreement on how to do it. And it's constantly changing team to team because some teams are more apt to incorporate technology and other forms of data. 
into the player evaluation process now than uh, others are. And so we're at the time of year now where the minor league season is over. Fall league is basically all that's left to cover domestically. And those assignments for scouts have basically been doled out. And so this is when on the scouting side, there are going to be a lot of staff changes. There's like a couple months now between right now and winter meetings for you to line up candidates and limit how many holes you have as far as hiring goes. Uh, And so a lot of this news has started to trickle in. And in addition to just staff changes, staff structure changes are occurring. And so we wanted to talk about some of the major league teams and what we know about how they go about scouting and why we think some of them are bad at it. <laughs> so let's start with the, I guess there was a, a trade deadline uh, sort of example, or, or I guess you, you right. saw it as an example of the way that you distribute your scouts affects who you get in a trade, basically. Right. So uh, living in Arizona, I see the teams that scout Arizona, that scout, uh, that pump scouting recess resources into the complex level, because it's just not all of them. There's a lot of baseball that happens here year-round, uh, and yet not all 30 teams have a single scout here. And so uh, specifically, these teams who teams who expect to compete and then suddenly are bad and look like on the surface need to rebuild, not all of them are well positioned from a scouting standpoint to be able to do that. So like San Francisco two seasons ago is an example of this. They did not have someone scouting uh, the complexes. They did not have someone looking at these uh, pop-up 17, 18, 19-year-old Latin kids coming to the United States for the first time. So like they, they wouldn't have a report on Rokio at all. Correct. Or – Like teams like, that don't do this, like they're, they basically – their information comes from stats, whatever trackman they might have and like right. you know, us. Amateur like reports. Yeah, us. Yeah. But um, Rokio wasn't I, even a big bonus guy. What did he get? Like 300,000? So it's, there's a chance they didn't even really have much on him as an amateur. Correct. Yeah. And like the 17 year old kids are the ones who change the most, the fastest. And those amateur reports on Latin American teenagers are the ones that become obsolete most quickly, in my opinion. So, so like, I guess uh, the, the reason that this, I think, would be interesting to a casual fan would be that you could read the board when you get close to the trade deadline and say, oh, here's a guy that they say could be a plus hitter and he's in rookie ball, but he's kind of interesting. He signed for not a lot of money last year, kind of emerged this year. There are certain major league teams who have zero scouting reports on those players, and we have more information than they do, and thus the reader has more than they do, which is borderline unbelievable, but I can tell you this happens. I've seen it in offices I've been in before. Yeah, so San Francisco has since hired someone to work uh, the complexes down here in Arizona, Uh, but the team that struck me at the trade deadline, who I was specifically thinking about writing about, uh, because everyone was just dumping on this team at the time, was the Mets. Uh, the Mets don't, let alone uh, the complex level goes unscouted. Anything beneath full season ball, the Mets pretty much don't scout. Uh, so when people are, get frustrated with what the Mets get in a return for a trade and how it's always like an A-ball reliever, it's because that, those are the players they know about. Uh, and like I went back several years under the current pro scouting director's regime, and they traded. they have traded for one – one player who had not uh, played in full season ball for the his previous club, like over the last I forget how long it was. It's because it's been so long since I put this article down. Um, but it's like several, like many years, and it's just clear that there are other teams have holes like this. This is the one that I see firsthand most often. 
Uh, a lot of teams are rectifying this, you know, especially as data becomes a more significant piece of player evaluation at the upper levels. Like those statistics are just more reliable. And when you want to parse through athletes and bodies and stuff is when they're malleable, 17, 18, 19-year-olds. And so like not only – now I think the mistake teams are making is that they consider this an entry-level job, not something they should be sending their best scouts to, which is what, in my opinion, they should be doing. Um, and also some teams – some teams don't have coverage down here because they're good and they have like dynamic coverage. Like, um, like the Cubs don't have – a scout down here in Arizona, I don't think, have guys scouring double and triple A for like pitching depth that might be able to help them out. But when they're bad, they will shift resources back down here. Like that's how the Cubs do it. And some teams will, if you have like team coverage, if I have, let's say I have uh, Toronto top to bottom, spend time in uh, New Hampshire. I might spend time in Buffalo to see their uh, full season clubs and then come all the way down to Dunedin uh, to, to scout extended spring training or uh, the Gulf Coast League or whatever. And uh, it's just different. Like the complexes are different. It's The schedules are changing constantly without notice and rosters are wrong and there aren't probable pitchers unless you know somebody. Uh, and so like it's its own thing. And uh, there are other examples of this team to team where uh, there are changes being made. And so structures are also changing as well. And so one of the things that we're looking out for over the next several weeks is teams make these new hires is not just that these positions are being filled and that teams aren't doing what Houston has done, which is essentially eliminate their scouting department, but just that teams are changing the way that they go about scouting uh, as well as the personnel themselves. So I got a couple points on this. Um, one, so I was in Pittsburgh in 2011, and we were talking about this stuff then. That like we had, a, I think we had a little bit of coverage of the short season leagues. And I was in, I guess, the analytics department, and we basically were pushing to do more of it for the reasons we're talking about. Like, it, it has now become, like, you would almost think, like, it would be scouting-oriented traditional teams that would be heavy on having scouts. But I think it's actually become more of a progressive thing to hit the, um, you know, analytics-based teams want to hit the, those levels more because uh, the reports make up more of the evaluation pie at the lower levels, especially amateur, you know, DSL, those, those sorts of levels. So... Pittsburgh was doing it a while ago. By the time I got to Atlanta, they had already started doing it. There is a team that is progressive that I was told of a meeting uh, where a GM yelled at somebody because a DSL report, which there's only, I'd say, a handful of teams that cover the DSL, did not have a video posted in their internal system yet. And the GM couldn't see the video of the guy they were thinking of trading for in the DSL. And there's probably 23 teams who don't even have a report on the guy. And this GM was mad that he didn't have video yet. And the report was from like the day before. So that's where, you know, more progressive teams that are trying to find edges wherever they can, they're doing things like this. They're not all, like, enemies towards scouts. And then there's uh, there's also some teams that don't push their guys to do this. But an example Eric gave of, like, if you have Toronto from low A on up and you're watching the high A team in Dunedin and you've got nothing going on at noon other than maybe writing a report, some of the go-getters aren't told to go watch the GCL or extended spring and they'll go do it anyway because they want to do a good job. And if some random guy shows up in low A at the end of the year, they want to know where he's coming from. And there's also some, I've run into some guys in Florida where they say, Oh, I do like Florida coverage. Like I do the Florida state league and I do the GCL and I do extended spring because you can kind of double up with like a noon game and a seven o'clock game almost every day. And so some teams are making roles to basically just fill your day out. Whereas in Arizona, you can do, you know, the AZL, but there's not necessarily a full season league to go, to go cover. And then sort of transitioning into what Eric was talking about, about you know, people 
people with clubs uh, both getting you know sort of hired and fired and all that kind of thing and, and teams making changes. It feels like both of us have become sort of resources for people in this process, either friends that get laid off from teams that are you know restructuring. And so it's not like fired, you know, for cause or anything. It's just getting let go because they need less people to do this and more people to do that. So you end up hearing a lot of stuff that we don't report about, hey, this team let go of this sort of guy. It sounds like they're trying to hire this other sort of guy who's got an opening, got a lot of press for essentially firing some scouts and replacing them with office guys and giving their existing scouts bigger areas and, and you know, more players to see. And It was just over a year ago. It was in the summer of 17. And they've, you know, they, they've gone even further in that direction. Right, they um, did more of it. This year, yeah, where they're, they're amateur scouts. I think they had uh, one guy retire that let at least one guy go, and instead of hiring another scout to fill in, the existing scouts just get more players to watch. You could argue smart, not smart, there's good parts of it, bad parts of it, but they basically will have fewer reports on amateur players, and there will be amateur players that are good that they will want when they get in pro ball that they will not have a report on. Like, that's just the reality of what's going to happen as a result of doing that. But having an extra guy in the office, maybe you have, you know, more advanced uh, sort of, you know, administration or analysis or, you know, things like that. Like, there's obviously, you know, a benefit that comes with it. You just have to, you know, weigh those options. The I guess the thing that sort of peeves some people in the industry is if you're selling out your stadium and winning the World Series, you have enough money to do both. So why are you making this like a binary? You have to choose one or the other. Right, because I think you can make an argument that, um, like, doing some facsimile of what we do with a slightly bigger staff and more data, like comprehensive TrackMan data for the minors and for the colleges that have TrackMan and uh, the high school showcases that utilize technology like that. That you that just like per dollar, that that's what ownership would be like. Yeah, that sounds great. You can still reproduce something close to what we're doing, and we're paying. We're not paying for like expenses and whatever. And as long as teams like Houston have an edge, like a like a targeted edge, like they know which players that they can identify with video and TrackMan uh, that are still going to be useful. Uh, and other teams don't because I think that's the situation we're in right now is where like go look at all of Houston's minor league pitchers. Go look at their strikeout rates like they know something that's causing this like this is not a blip. This is a clear uh, like competency a core competency for Houston is they know how to find pitchers who miss bats as soon as enough other teams get hip to that then suddenly will they be behind those other teams because those other teams have scouts. Yeah, when a, t- when a team matches Houston's sophistication in the office and they have twice as many scouts and presumably better scouts because, like, really good scouts don't really want to work for the Astros right now. I mean, some of them do that have stayed there. No, they don't. But in general, they, they can't, like, go acquire good ones. Yeah, no one wants no one's super psyched to, like, go work for a team that they know might fire them a year later because, like, that's what's happened to some of Houston's scouts. Yeah, and some guys in the office that are just, like, the sort not the sort of office guy they want. They'll just let him go and go find some different guy. Um, which you'd, you'd think would be the thing they're getting away from, but it's it, it's just sort of efficiency at all costs, which obviously you could see how that would rub some people the wrong way, but how that is a presentation to ownership. It'd be very easy to say, hey, doing this, we're going to cut costs 10%, and we're going to be 8% more accurate on finding players. The issue I have with it is the, um, if you want to call it like leakage, like the things that you lose in doing this, you can't measure. So you don't know how much value you're losing because you don't have a player turned in that you never knew about because you don't have enough scouts or you don't know about the signability. So you end up not signing a player or, you know, whatever sort of little thing that you can't put a number on. Um, you're losing a lot of that. You don't know how much, uh, you can't quantify it. And then what you're gaining, you can quantify perfectly. And so when you, you know, make a, 
um, you know, presentation to, you know, Kinsey about this is why we're going to do this. You can say we're going to be 10% better at this, but you maybe you're losing 12% with stuff that you can't measure. But if you, there was a way to measure it, it would actually outweigh it. You're just never going to know because you're just looking for a number, which I think is why we're sort of advocating for doing both the best you can, <laughs> because that's probably the right answer if you could measure everything. I was going to say like the makeup stuff too, handling that takes scouting PI work. And some of it, I understand like there are diminishing returns. Some of it makeup as a, as a term is very gray and can be dubious. And a lot of times some of it is just the scouts perception and biases. And like, there are a lot of problems with makeup as a thing, but if you care about it, like you might not acquire Jonathan Singleton and Ken Giles with his issues and 15 guys, Tampa's got Yeah. Like, there, there are landmines that you can avoid. It's not a coincidence. I mean, Tampa cares about makeup. I've had uh, – Tampa, Tampa does makeup work. Um, no, I, but, I'm saying they're – I guess they're an example of like a progressive team that's had a bunch of guys with makeup problems. Not because they're not paying attention to it. Sure. Like, like I know they do, but they've had, I guess, more sort of instances of it being an issue than other teams. And, and I right. also don't think it's a coincidence that if you look at sort of the traditional teams like um, – I guess traditionally Atlanta, San Diego, Kansas City – uh, Miami, I think those teams tend to do a little better. I mean, this is obviously just kind of pull off the top of my head. I think those teams tend to do a little better with makeup because they tend to emphasize more what the scout thinks and the scout will, you know, veto a guy based on makeup. Like, I think there's a, like a process reason. Um, it doesn't mean the player's any better. Um, there are plenty of traditional teams that have drafted guys because they like their makeup and the guy ends up just being a terrible player. And there's plenty of guys that are, you know, kind of dickheads that get drafted. Um, that some, Like, there were some teams that said, we don't want Bryce Harper. We think he's a bad guy. Obviously, that look, looks like a wrong move in hindsight. So, yeah, there's there's gray areas, I think, in all of this. And there are scouts who would tell you – who would give you completely opposite answers about uh, certain players' makeup. Like there are certain scouts who would be like, Mark Appel's makeup is awful. And others who would be like, oh, it's he's it's an elite makeup guy, right? Yeah, there's been there's – been, um, I've had a lot of conversations uh, with scouts when I've been with teams and when I haven't that if you like the player and want him, then you, you would call him confident. And if you don't like the player and don't want him, then you'd say he's full of himself. That like the exact same information gets interpreted right. the opposite way, and it becomes a disqualifier or a qualifier. And then you'll see another team takes him, and you're like, I can't believe that the team thinks this guy has good makeup. And it's like, well, it's actually not, it's a very subtle difference. It's like how you know love and hate are very similar things, but like being lukewarm is the opposite. Uh, I think it ends up going that way with makeup a lot of the time. Or or certain teams just say this guy's so good. Uh, we think it's just off-the-field stuff, but his on-field makeup is great. We can deal with the off-the-field stuff. We can get some guy to shadow him, you know, force him to make better decisions. And th- I mean, that's happened before, so you can't... I mean, Josh Hamilton ended up being really good for a pretty long run there, basically, you know, monitoring him off the field closely. So, th- I mean, there's an example for everything. And, and I think there may eventually be an example of a team that goes, you know, what would seem to be too far toward the analytics side, but then gets good results... And there's obviously examples of teams that go probably too far on the traditional side and get bad results. So it's not like there's a correct answer. It's just it's probably somewhere in the middle, taking a little bit of both, and then each individual decision kind of shifting that you know either either end of the spectrum depending on what the situation calls for. Which in the case of looking at guys at you know complex leagues or 17 year olds, uh, it's probably a little more of a scouting report and a little less of the stats. So what are some of the teams that we want to uh, quick touch on who have made changes? We've already talked about Houston who uh, let go of a bunch more scouts a year after they uh, they let go of, like they had their first round of firings, whatever you want to call it. So, so I've had um, almost a call every day of 
and sometimes you know two or three in one day of people asking like, hey, what are you hearing? Who's looking to hire? What, what's going on? And it seems like the sort of um, the thing that's holding everybody up is the Mets and the Orioles. Everyone's waiting to hear who the Orioles and the Mets will hire as their GM, or I guess in the Orioles' case, whether they keep the existing GM or do they name a different one, because both of those will end up either hiring or firing multiple sort of special assistants, uh, directors of departments, um, possibly managers, like all kinds of different stuff will go with those two. And and then obviously if you hire the replacement away from another team, then that'll create another cascade. Um, So I think the industry on the whole seems to be waiting for those things to happen. And I would also throw in Toronto who just let go some scouts. Uh, But the reason I bring up Toronto also is because there's tons of rumors that Mark Shapiro, the president, and the, we'll say, control person are not getting along. And some people think Shapiro may be trying to get to the Mets. And then obviously if that happens, Shapiro has a lot of guys tied to him. A lot of guys with the Blue Jays are tied to him. Could some of them go with him? Would he then appoint one of those guys to come to the Mets? Would he wait until the end of next year and then go somewhere? Like, how does this resolve itself? So, like, I guess those three teams are, could potentially create a ton, you know, dozens and dozens of, you know, hiring and firing and moving um, as a result. So that that's sort of what's holding everything up. It seems like Seattle too. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Seattle let go of a handful of scouts. I think that there's going to be a de- departmental like restructuring going on there, uh, which would be pretty interesting. Seattle has made a lot of interesting hires, both in scouting and on the player dev side, uh, in like the last couple of years, and we really haven't had a chance to see what is going to happen with that sort of stuff because uh the team hasn't been acquiring minor league pro side talent like they've been shipping it away to supplement the big league roster the last two years i mean everyone knows uh how many trades jerry depoto has made yeah they're one of those they're one of those teams that it might not be useful for them like rubber meets the road to have a bunch of reports on guys in rookie ball because they're just not trading for those guys not to say they shouldn't be, but you, you can see why if they decide to not have a guy in EZL and have a bunch of guys sure. bouncing around double A and triple A, you can see why they would do that. But you can also see how, when you look at the age of their big league roster, how they might quickly need someone to do that. Yeah, they're they're getting into that area where it's, do we want to ride this out as long as we can and then have it be ugly after that? Or do we want to try to do like a power rebuild and switch out two or three old guys every year and try to like, you know, take the planks off this boat while it's still sailing and, you know, stay on, on the water the whole time? Philly made a farm director change. I was actually on a podcast, of the Good Fight uh, Philly's podcast with John Stolness. Is that Fight uh, with an F? No. <laughs> oh, okay, good. I did, not, I did not use the Philly accent on that podcast at all. But um, were you drinking some water? My water, yeah, my uncle Chick and stuff. Uh, <laughs> it sounds just like my if I do Philly accent, it sounds just like my uncle Chick. Uh, and yeah, we drink a lot of water. And the Eagles go Eagles and Flyers. <laughs> Are keeping keeping up with the Flyers in Arizona? What's your favorite gas station? Yeah, uh, yeah, they don't have Wawa out there, do they? No, no, no they got a Wawa. Well, no. <laughs> oh, I don't know what I do with that Wawa. Arc. But uh, but yeah, so Philly's going to be looking for a new farm director. Brian Minetti is sort of like the – he's in charge of – ready? Here's the list of stuff Brian Minetti is in charge of in Philadelphia. Scouting, okay. international and amateur, oh. and player development. And, and is, <laughs> it, does he also have some of the Jared Kushner stuff? He's doing Middle East Peace. He's doing the VA. He's got a couple more of those on there. So where he's from – Did you? he was in Pittsburgh, right? Where, he where had you, left when I got there. Okay. Um, where else has he all been? He's been in Pittsburgh Arizona, and – I think Washington – Okay, because I'm trying to gauge what they might do there. Gabe Kapler comes from the Dodgers. 
so like these are the orgs who I would anticipate they they draw from at least or some like sort of philosophical tree. It's like the Bill Parcells coaching tree is sort of come has come to player development and it's like you know the weighted ball programs that are implemented correctly those guys hire staff and their staff uh, those people get hired you know into higher roles with other clubs because you know the Dodgers are doing well they're changing guys swings uh they're developing pitching and um so I would anticipate stuff like that to happen with the Phillies farm director search but yeah, I get the impression it'll be a, a, a younger guy that thinks a little closer to how the office thinks. Not necessarily like the most progressive guy on earth to where he doesn't, you know, know how to hold a bat or coach anybody, but I don't think it'll be the old the old Leatherface Scout type. And then uh, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Milwaukee, it seems like, have changed some of their amateur side stuff. Yeah, Cincinnati's hiring a new around. Cincinnati just hired a new scouting director for the draft and is in the process of hiring a new international director. But the 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 existing guys are also still there. So um, Chris Buckley and uh, Tony Arias. Got some other ones? Yeah. Uh, there's some talk. I think that's, yeah, there's some talk. I don't know, that's that, sort of it as far as stuff I know about, right? I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Yeah, there, there's some, uh, like Miami has some cross-checker spots to fill, but they have a new director, um, DJ Svillick. So, I mean, you're not in a huge rush. You don't really need those guys until, like, you know, February necessarily. Yeah, and there's some others, I guess, sort of more on the rumor end of, you know, I heard this guy was on the hot seat. I heard this team's looking to hire, like, a new special assistant. Um, there might be a little, you know, shuffling at the upper rungs of a team here or there. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't think those necessarily apply to this. That's more just, uh, you know, executive intrigue or we had a bad season. We need to make it look like we're changing things so nobody gets in trouble. And if you're in a position of uh, hiring power in baseball and you're listening to this, first of all, thank you for your listenership. Uh, and, like, uh, hire some, some women. And uh, people of color. Yeah. Thanks. And well, I mean, we both have examples where people that are in either hiring or hiring adjacent positions have asked us for for names in that regard. Or if we have any people, it's I don't know. It's yeah. There are definitely some teams. Uh, yeah, like Arizona has de- has. Uh, I mean, it's easy for me to see Arizona what they're doing because I'm right here. But Arizona has made a point to do it uh, and ask around for candidates. Uh, who fit that description? Uh, the Angels, uh, Seattle, um, St. Louis. I want to say Minnesota. Would you say it in a Minnesota accent? Oh yeah, <laughs> you betcha. Pretty bummed about the Badgers. Hey, what's your coverage like, eh? <laughs> it's a tough loss to BYU for the Badgers. Yeah, but any, right. anyway, so I, I I think we were trying to basically grab some names of teams that. Uh, we're either getting rid of people, changing things, whatever. And I think we just named like over half the league. So yeah, basically everybody's doing something. Uh, it's not like your team is a disaster because they're hiring a different director of whatever. Like basically yeah. every team does something like this every offseason. Yeah, and good luck to everyone who was let go and is like now looking for work. Like good luck, and I hope that you all find something. And especially it's, if you're uh, listening now, because you know one day we'll be able to monetize you being a listener, which you know this helps everybody. <laughs> <laughs> all right, topic three. This was your topic. So, like, what did you, what did you have in mind for this? It just says Acuna v Soto v Vlad. <laughs> who yeah. is best? Who who is best? Maybe we should have some more takes for this. Um, well, I guess, yeah, I guess it can't be a hot take because there's not really a wrong answer there. Um, so there's there's been some um, how would I say this? Some some memes, some takes, uh, a lot of uh, well, we'll say you know just Jeff Pass and tweets. Um, about how historic now that Acuna and Soto 
have enough plate appearances to where there's I don't think they've technically qualified for like the batting title, but they're up there enough that you can start you know making historical comparisons. Um, so for instance, I'm looking at OPS plus in a single season by a 19 or 20 year old in the big leagues since. Um, I was going to say the Civil War, not since then, since, since World <laughs> War II. Here's the list. Number one, Mike Trout. Number two, Al Kaline. Number three, Mickey Mantle. Number four, A-Rod. Five is Acuna. Six is Juan Soto. <laughs> and those are 19 and 20-year-olds, 400 or more plate appearances uh, in the big leagues since, what is it, 1948 or whatever that cutoff is. Let me give you some of the names. I have the top 25 I'm looking at right now. Here's some names below Acuna and Soto. Frank Robinson, Ken Griffey, Carlos Correa, Bryce Harper, Willie Mays, Bryce Harper again, Johnny Bench, Eddie Matthews, Ken Griffey again, Justin Upton. Like these are the names that do these sorts of things. So there are some. Yeah, like, everybody on the list is good. Tony Canigliaro uh, is on the list twice as well for his age nineteen and twenty year old seasons. Of course, uh, the youngins listening, uh, Google that. That guy's career was taken from him by uh, a ball to the face. And I even left out Orlando Cepeda, who made the Hall of Fame, right? Yeah, Orlando Cepeda, uh, Veda Pinson, who was really good for the, mostly for the Reds for a long time. Um, he's also on this list. Jason Hayward is also on this Jason list. Jason Hayward might be the worst player on this list. <laughs> he's probably the worst guy on the list. And uh, he's another guy who I really think there was probably some sort of injury thing that took away some of the the pop. Yeah. Um, but he also was like, what was putting up four, five, and six win seasons for like a pretty good run there? Like, it's not like he was a failure. Yeah, so everybody on the list is good, in essence. Unless you get hit uh, in the eye with a fastball. Like, that seems to be the exception. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an incredible list. And uh, I think even, even if our reasons for, for having Juan Soto where he was on our preseason 100, which was what, like in the 50s or something like that, I, I want to say? exactly 50, yeah. That was actually one of the things I was going to say during the Bruhan segment, which was he hadn't played in a full season league, so we were basically doing the Soto thing, which is, well, he hasn't even played in a full season league yet, so let's be aggressive and put him at, for Bruhan, it was a 45 future value, which now seems too low, but he's like put up like a historic year, which, you know, it would be almost normal if Soto were to put up a crazy year at low A and high A and then maybe get a late promotion at double A this year, we'd be able to do a similar thing with him and he'd be, you know, second or third right now. But yeah. he just went straight to the big leagues and was like way better than anybody could have expected. Yeah, I mean, certainly better than anyone could have reasonably expected him to be. Uh, but like, inarguably, we were just on talent, like light on him. And some of it is the the play discipline, right? So now this is gets down to the question of who do you, who do you, who you got going forward? Um, Acuna, Soto, or Vlad? And it's interesting to talk about whose skill set is the most stable because Soto, and this is really the one thing that's harder to evaluate over a small sample, is the plate discipline. He has probably the best plate discipline of this group. And, and he's um, younger, yeah. And then Acuna is a much better athlete who plays center field. So he's gonna, if we're you know going to measure who's right by war, then he's going to have the advantage. Even if he doesn't play center field, like he has the sort of advantage of having having the um, you know higher base running and defensive values to go with the hitting. And I, I would say he's. Well, I guess they have like similar raw power, and Acuna's a little better at tapping into the power now, like a little more of a pure power stroke, whereas Soto's a little more of like a pure hitter. Would you say that's yeah? Acuna's got like he's gonna hit like 450 foot pull side shots, and Acuna and Soto's gonna spray the ball all over the field and hit like 340 foot uh, like line drives to left 
that get out. Like they're totally it's different the way they get there, but yeah, I think they're both gonna be like 30, 35 home run hitters. So it seemed like the you know, sort of the paint by numbers version of prepping these guys out would be well Acuna and Soto are doing similar things performance wise. Acuna's a better athlete and more defensive value and best running value, so we'll take Acuna over Soto. And then Acuna and Soto both already gone nuts in the big leagues over a pretty big sample and Vlad hasn't, so then and also Vlad has maybe the least defensive value of the three. It, it, him and Soto may be close. So you got to make him third. If Vlad comes up and argue, I mean, you could argue if Vlad was just up for half of a season this year. I mean, he might out hit both of these guys. We don't know. I mean, that's like certainly possible. Yeah. I would imagine he would probably wouldn't out hit them. He'd probably be you know somewhere in like the one twenty five to one forty five area, and would probably have you know the, the least defensive value. So I I think it's safe to put him third. But I think all three of these guys, what do you, you call them, present seventies? Would would you put future eighties on them? Like, do we have enough now to do that? No, I don't think so. I think if you look at – if we were having this conversation about last year's rookie class, like Cody Bellinger and stuff. Judge. Judge, that we might be saying some of the same stuff. And I just think it takes big league pitching a little longer than we think it does to solve some of these guys a little bit. Well, and especially so in it, Soto's case. Like he was performing Hoskins like this. last year too. Yeah, Soto was like, performing like this in like the Appy League at this point last year. So he's like enough of an outlier. It would be reasonable to want to see a little bit more before saying he's the best in baseball at his position. But Acuna and Vlad were seen as like very elite guys before this year. So like this isn't super surprising on their part. Reese Hoskins was on like the list of names that he, he was next to for whatever the hell he was doing last year was like Mickey Mantle and stuff too. <laughs> You know, and he was a two and a half win guy this year. So yeah, no, that that's reasonable. Some um, of that is they, that he's been played out of position horribly. Like he should not be in left field. But also, he's, he's like a right right corner guy, not an elite athlete. Like I don't think anyone thought him or even you know Pete Alonso. Like pick your sort of guy du jour that you that people think is going to turn to Paul Goldschmidt. I don't think anyone thought either of those guys are going to put up six win seasons. Even though you know Hoskins, I guess, was on pace for that if he would have kept doing that at what he did in September. The rest of the year, whereas these guys, like, they seem a little, they seem like a tier above that. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. That's true. Like, I didn't have Reese Hoskins in the top five of my <laughs> individual hundred, like when I put it up. So, so my uh, my next question. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna pivot a bit. So finish your thought. No, go ahead. I don't. I already forgot what I was gonna say. <laughs> um. So then the next question would be, if we're gonna say. I mean, I, I think I had Acuna right. Obviously, I was in the private sector when Acuna was rising. Um, but I, and I was also very close to it and somewhat biased. So, you know, having it right, whatever. Um, Soto, we were obviously a little light on. Vlad, I think we yeah. handled pretty well. Um, the question now would be going forward, the next guys who could be teenagers in the big leagues. Um, how do we want to handle those guys to be appropriately aggressive when we think, like we get a glimpse of who the next guy could be, should we be more aggressive? Like at what point do we do we think we have enough, you know, to go off of? And I would I would point um, us to three players in particular. Um, we have Wander Franco, who in the update has been moved up to sixth overall. So the question is, can we be aggressive enough with a guy who we think is next? We've basically been as aggressive as you could possibly be. Um, you could argue Royce Lewis, who's 19 in high A, if he gets, you know, very if he pulls like an Acuna next year, he could be in the big leagues. Yeah, he's a young 19 right now in September as we're sitting here. Like he won't turn he won't be 20 until like you know, will he be 20 next like sometime next summer, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, like in the middle of the season. So if he does like an Acuna level thing, he might get there at 19. I don't think Minnesota is yeah. inclined to call him up right away and 
you know, they'd have to like be in a race and need a guy that plays his position, which is another thing. Part of the reason he's rising is he seems more likely to play shortstop now. I actually had, uh, a, yeah. we'll say a very uh, old, <laughs> experienced scout um, who saw Jeter when he was 19 said he thinks Wander, uh, sorry, he thinks Royce Lewis is defensively ahead of where Jeter was when Jeter was 19. And I, of course, immediately started thinking of the memes past to diving Royce Lewis.com or you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> Because, you know, I'm a millennial and I'm cynical or whatever. Sure, yeah. Yeah, but, but you know, he did also play shortstop in the big leagues for a long time, regardless of how good he was uh, at the end. And then I'd say the last one would be Fernando Tatis Jr., who is, what, he's in double A right now. He's 19 right now. Um, he'll, what, he'll be 20 in, like, the beginning of next year? So he'll be another one like Royce Lewis. So he'll be just under the wire if he can get there. Yeah, he's in January, so he's not going to make it unless he gets called up now. Um, but he would be a very young 20, which I guess is what Acuna is right now. So those would be the guys I would point to. Is there somebody I'm missing? And do you think where, where do you think those guys are on sort of like the spectrum of being the next sort of 19 or early 20-year-old to get to the big leagues? I think that my, my tendency to – I'm inclined to look at guys with like polished hit tools because that, those are the guys I think move the, quick, the quickest – uh, like Andres Jimenez has and stuff, um, but at the same time, it takes like an elite level of physicality to do this. Like, if you look at Vlad Jr. and Acuna and Juan Soto and stuff, like these, these are different physical beings than like let's say Brian Rocchio. So even if I think Brian Rocchio is the most advanced hit tool of any professional seventeen-year-old, uh, when he's nineteen, he's still going to be like a, an undersized guy who's probably not ready to compete physically uh, in the big leagues. So um, with that in mind, I guess the only guy who you didn't mention who I is still 18 and uh, I guess you could say could get there pretty quickly is like Nolan Gorman, uh, who was also really good in the Appy League as an 18-year-old. He's a young 18 as well. He won't turn 19 until next May. Uh, he went 350, 440, 664 in the Appy League at 18, uh, got a promotion to low A for the last month of the season, and um, then some of the issues that he had with striking out this spring as a high schooler uh, that caused some trepidation uh, and were part of the reason that he he slipped. Those started to pop up again. He had like a 38% strikeout rate or something like that in uh, low A, but uh, he was better in the Appy League than I would have ever expected he would be immediately. He had 11 home runs in 38 games. Um so that's another guy who, like, that's a physical monster who, if you th- put him in a big league uniform and lined him up next to all the other big leaguers, it would, you'd have a hard time saying, oh, that's the kid who just graduated high school. Um, but, uh, I think you could so, also, yeah. uh, this is probably the we- him and Gorman would be the two weakest ones here, would be Joe Adele, who basically turns 20 sure. on opening day next year. And he, yeah, he's, there's some questions on how the hit tool would translate in the big leagues, but there's, like, no question that the tools, um, you know, sort of fit as an everyday big leaguer. I would imagine he'll probably go double A and some triple A and maybe a September call up as a 20 year old next year. So he's, you know, he's pretty close, but it, yeah, when you're talking about you, you want to feel good about an advanced hit tool to both project him to keep being on this trajectory and for the team to feel good, putting him in the big leagues that he's not going to fail. That's probably the, I guess him and Gorman would be the least hit tool of the ones we've talked about. So we put Franco at six. Um, I guess we mentioned it earlier that he's, basically outperformed Vlad and has a 
even higher upside as far as the profile goes. Um, one of the things we talk about, like I guess with Soto, like he was one of the top 20 bonuses in his class when he signed. So he was a guy on the radar. It's not like him him going nuts last year when he was in short season was like a surprise. Like we thought he would be good. He was better than we thought he would. He made like physical uh, improvements, which obviously happened. We've talked about with Pache that um, he was a guy with like 55 tools. And then one year later when he was 17, suddenly had 60 tools. And now he's got some 70s and 80s. So obviously when you're hitting the top of that July 2 market, you're hoping to get the guy like right before like a physical maturation because you're already paying for tools. You'd hope those tools can get even better. Franco seems very unique in the sense that it is a crazy advanced hit tool. It's like basically plus tools across the board and he can play shortstop. And he's performing at the high end of the uh, of, of what is possible, phys- yeah. humanly possible. Yeah, he's he, yeah he's reach, he's reaching physical limits where I feel like he just like turned into a black hole if he performed any better. Um, but so one of the things we were talking about was like how how long has he been on the radar? So he was the highest bonus in his class. He was known widely to be it's either him or the you know R.I.P. the departed Daniel Flores were identified as the two top guys in that class. Um, and I have a personal story, actually. So when I was with the Braves, we went to a workout um, to see some guys. And it was sort of like we're going to grab Who some... were 12? What? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, we, were, we were trying to see some guys who were, you know, low six-figure, kind of filling for the DSL, like some lower prospects. And so we went to the field, and the trainer was it was just very common down there. You go for a specific thing, and you'll be at the yard for two hours before the guys you went to see are actually on the field, because the trainer wants to show yeah. you all of his guys for the next three all years to get some attention on. And you have to like yell at them, like like well, let me show you a twenty twenty guy, and then all of a sudden seven twenty twenty guys come out, and you're like, we we don't have time for this, dude. Like we're gonna <laughs> get stuck in traffic. Of mo- bad movie trailers, like for two hours. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, you're here to see Transformers. We've got some terrible trailers for you to watch because you seem like coming in 2020. A lefty that throws 84. <laughs> and then you find out, like, how old are you? you? Ask the kid. The kid tells you he's 19, and the, the trainer says he's 15. And it's like, okay, like enough with this ruse. We're trying to give you money. Like, show us your play. He said he was 19. He knew too much. They didn't believe him. Um, so the trainer says, "Hey, I got a guy for two years from now." And this, we already knew we were going to be in the penalty that year. So we're like, we don't need. He's like, no, 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 trust me. You're going to want to see this guy. And so Wander Franco comes out, hits home runs as a lefty, and, you know, like looks the part like, oh, this guy looks like he can play shortstop. He looks like he can run. Just kind of like seeing him move around and play catch and then swing the bat. And he hits him out with a wood bat and BP. And it's like crappy bat, crappy ball. Like, you know, it's not like the best conditions. And then uh, we think he's about to leave. He walks out of the batter's box. And he just grabs a different helmet and hits righty and starts hitting him out right-handed. And, like, in the world of guys that play up the middle that are 16 or younger, hitting it out from both sides is, like, immediately $2 million. Like, there, we, when I was at the Braves, we signed Junior Severino. That was, like, his calling card. He could play somewhere in the infield, and he can hit it out from both sides. It's almost impossible to find at this age. And this kid was, at, I guess, was 14 at, at Wander Franco, was 14 at the time, and did the same thing. And just didn't even take around balls, and then the trainer was like, all right, he's going to leave now, like, you know, he's uh, he's done. But I just wanted you guys to see that, and we're like, hold on, <laughs> where, where's that guy going? Can he come back? And then we're like, oh, yeah, we, we can't get that guy. Um, but all that to say, you, you might think this guy got the top bonus when he was 16, but how long has he really been identified as a top guy? It was before he was 14. It was probably 12 or 13, to be honest. Um, which makes me feel better about seeing his crazy tools and his crazy performance because this guy's basically never been the best player on a field before. Like, it, it would be foreign to him to watch somebody perform better than he does, which, you know, that gives me some confidence to say this guy might continue doing this. The 2017 international class, 
Franco, Ronnie Mauricio with the Mets, Julio Rodriguez, uh, Luis Garcia with the Phillies, George Valera with Cleveland, Christian Robinson with Arizona. Like It looks pretty good so far. Miguel Geraldo with Toronto, uh, not necessarily my cup of tea. It's like a stocky, uh, maxed out 5'10 kid, but like he can really swing it. There's no projection on the body, but he can really swing it. Um, he's interesting. Uh, this, like it's 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 a good group. Both this class nominally also has kids. this class nominally also has Otani and Luis Robert in it, and and That's Julio true, Pablo yeah. Martinez. Yeah, and Everson yep. Pereira with the Yankees, Lu- Luis Garcia. Yeah, there's there's a lot of guys, and there's like some next dudes. Week we'll have to talk about Victor Victor. We'll have to talk about some of the Cuban the Cuban guys on the market now next week. We totally forgot about that. Yeah, I knew there was something I was forgetting when I was making the. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know. I guess I've talked about him in chats and stuff like that enough. I feel like people know where we stand, but I guess we can give an update um, with where, where that eh. guy's going to fall. I uh, guess I don't expect everyone to read and uh, listen to or just consume everything we do anymore. I, I do. I assume everybody does. Mm. Wait, do you guys? Can they answer me right now? Can they hear this? All right. It, sound, it sounds like no. Nobody's saying anything. <laughs> um, Oh, Sandy Gaston, too? We're going to have to talk about that? Yeah, we, we'll talk about some Cubans next week, I say. Oh, yeah, you know, being in Florida, I, I could really get some uh, Ropa Vieja, get some Cuban sandwiches, maybe some plantains. I could really get in there. There's um, no Cuban place here. There's a Puerto Rican place uh, in Mesa that uh, some of the ballplayers go to during spring training. There's a Javier Baez shrine in the place. Uh, <laughs> it's called Millie's. I go there and I get uh, Hibarito, which is like pork. It's like seasoned pork and cheese and some other good stuff that's like um, not translucent between two fried plantains. Like the plantains act as the bun. Oh, it's like uh, the, it's the KFC double down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a double down with plantains and like pulled pork and stuff. And I get that and some mofongo. Uh, and it is incredible. It's <laughs> very heavy for lunch, but you, it is amazing. Do you ever do an impression of Keenan Thompson doing David Ortiz yeah. talking about mofongo? <laughs> yes, of course I do. But yeah, but you're doing Keenan. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, like yeah. I wasn't doing McCartney earlier. I was doing Dana Carvey doing McCartney. Yeah, because yeah, so do the duck lips, swing, and we went to the one end of and you know, that's sort of all it is. You just put words in there. Sounds like you're having a laugh. Uh, yeah, well then I guess to, to wrap up this topic, then we, I think we reasonably feel good about Franco. We've put him about as aggressive as we can. Same with Lewis, who's right there with him, although he might not get there as a 19-year-old. Yeah. And then Tatis, we have him second. And then obviously Vlad is there at first. So basically the top the top six of our list has four dudes that we think might be this. And then all the other guys that could be that to varying degrees are in like the 15 to 80 range, depending on how much they've shown so far. Um, right. There are other pitfalls for those guys. They are like extremely likely to be in a corner or there are swing and miss issues or both of those things. Like, um, but yeah, the thing, the, the comp I got on Franco was, I guess it's not really a comp, but it's like, uh, swings from both sides. Like it looks physically like Francisco Mejia, the body, the style of hitting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it, but he has an approach and plays short. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, that's like it's really good, really good. Um, and, and before, and before I, um, well, I guess after I saw him as a fourteen-year-old, but before I saw him as a sixteen-year-old, I was told, yeah, it's basically Hanley Ramirez. Like, you're not exactly sure like what position or if he's always under control, but he's so much better than everybody else. He can just kind of be out of control. Matter. And there, yeah. he was at the MLB showcase when he was an amateur. I think he ran like an eight-one um, in this in the seventy, which would be like off the charts twenty uh, speed. But he was just like so bored 
playing in this game that like he just swung at the first pitch that was hittable in the middle of the zone. He hit a line drive every time. Uh, his BP was just like you know scorching the ball all over the place. He didn't feel like running because he already had his money and like everybody could tell he was fast. Like I almost feel like that. I mean, we've seen this with some players where they shouldn't be in the minors and they're in the minors, and sometimes they just keep raking, and sometimes they get um, you know sort of downtrodden or depressed that they're in the minors and they play poorly, and you have to sort of adjust for that. I could see him being a guy where you need to promote him aggressively to keep him engaged because obviously in the Appy League, like that was not holding his attention very well. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would say the same thing about Willie Calhoun, which is the last guy that we fought about as far as where he belonged on the board. <laughs> yeah. Which I lost. <laughs> I would say you lost. We came to a we no, came to an you, understanding. No, you swayed me logically. It's fine. Yeah, we just didn't talk about him, and I look at his numbers, and I was like, wait a minute. The, we, we assumed this was going to turn around. I don't think it turned around yet. Start hitting Willie. I buy it. Yeah. Eric will get you some Mofongo for Do spring it. training. Oh, no. No, I won't. <laughs> it's not, not what Willie needs. Salads, Willie. Oh, boy. Stay on the spectrum, Willie. All right. Well, uh, we've once again gone way over time. Um, it's not as bad. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, not terrible. And I, I think people have now come to the expectation now that there's been two episodes. Oh, that, this might just run over an hour. Um, all right. Whatever. Well, I think that's it. Uh, you can catch me at the Funny Bone and Rooster Tea Feathers uh, this weekend and next. Uh, go to my website I'll, for details. I'll be at the uh, Portland Helium Great room. October it's a great room. Low fourth, ceiling. Fourth through seventh. I hope they don't put me in the condo again. Oh, God. Steal the toilet paper if you can, though. Got to get your money's worth. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. We'll see you guys next week. For Eric Longenhagen, I'm Kylie McDaniel. This has been the Untitled McDonald Hagen Project. Uh, yeah, so I feel like we've done enough voices for this uh, for one segment. Um, Dude. <laughs> that's what it's going to be. Yeah, so, someone, like, someone say too many. I'd, I, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs>